Welcome, welcome, everybody, to today's of Common Humanity podcast. Today, we are talking with Michael Roberts, who is an author of a book called, oh man, Behind Sacred Walls. I had to put all the words in the right direction because they weren't going to be. Um, I'm very excited about this conversation. I have no idea where it's going to go. I never do. Let's be honest. Uh, That's what's fun about this. That's what's fun about conversations is they take twists and turns. Um, Here we have it. Michael, welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It is great to have you today. And I'm really excited to have this conversation and just meet you and learn more about you and um, hear some of your story. So, to start us off, Michael, who are you? <laughs> okay, well, I um, am a gay man who um, decided to write a book about my my trauma. Um, I felt it was important for me not to just become a victim and to empower myself to um, help others. And I thought writing this book would, would help others who are struggling with spiritual, you know, religious abuse, even emotional and physical abuse. So this book is my personal memoir, you know, chronicling the the, the lengthy, agonizing spiritual, physical, and emotional abuse that I suffered at the hands of several Catholic priests. Um, I have a degree in biological science, um, and I live with my partner um, in the suburbs. The suburbs, well, you don't have to say this because you don't have to give away your location, but where are you? I'm about, I'm in on the East Coast, and okay. I'm out about, I can kind of give you a general inf- idea, I'm sort of outside of Boston. Okay. Um, you may might notice the accent when I park the car or something, so it may come <laughs> up, I don't know. But um, yeah. I always, um, side note, I'm originally from North Dakota, mm-hmm. so that's the accent that comes out for me, and I always tell people, like, the accent across the northern part of America, like to me, it's all the same accent. It's just a different vowel. Like as you, the further east you go, like we just we just go through all of the vowels because in North Dakota, it's very like the O U sound. But you get to Minnesota, and it's more O O. It's the same. It's the same accent, but we just stress different vowels the further east or further west you go along the northern yeah we don't pronounce part of the country ours so it's sort of like ka and yad and yeah you know sort of that <laughs> like the ka and the yad so. it can be a little harsh but anyway yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so i guess i want to hear a little bit i want to hear a little bit about your experience i was i was raised catholic um and have my own very different issues with the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll be honest, I've never, I've never had the opportunity to speak to someone. I mean, it's a well-known and well-documented issue within the Catholic church. Um, and it became a very public problem. I'm guessing at how old am I now? Like, we'll go 20 years ago sometime when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, where it was just like, oh, this is a thing that was happening. And I was an altar server at the time and, you know, gave side eye to all of my priests. Um, 
And if, if you're willing to share a little bit of that story Absolutely. here, um, I'd love to hear your perspective and kind of what your experience was. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm sure that, you know, as a, as a child, we grow up, um, sort of looking at, at a priest as the, God's representation on earth. Mm -hmm. I believe that this man with a collar who walked around the rectory or walked around his, the church grounds was for me, God. I mean, he was the closest thing to God. And I grew up in a very religious family. My mother, I was, it was not uncommon for her to be sitting in her rocking chair, reading the Bible and with doing her rosary beads. Um, I would laugh now because we would have like, my mother had a little plastic Jesus that would glow in the dark at night. It would kind of collect the, the sun and then it would glow in the dark. I mean, and we had religious paintings and, you know, you, I think for me being raised was, I had sort of two things that were difficult for me. First was the struggle with being a gay man and the struggle of the fear I had being in a, a, uh, in a religion that sort of saw being gay as, um, evil, uh, mm -hmm. going to hell and so forth. So I had sort of two things. And, you know, I remember, I mean, I believed in Noah's Ark and I believed in Adam and Eve and I believed in all these things that were sort of, you know, pontificated from the altar. And I mean, I thought God could see me at any time. I mean, picking my nose, did God see me picking my nose? I mean, it was sort of that thing where you felt God was watching you all the time. He was sort of this white man sitting above with a long beard looking down on you. Um, so here I had this fear of God. And then I had the fear that was added to me, which was my sexual preference that I struggled with. And how do you come to terms with that? And I, th there was no role models back then. This is in the 80s. You turned on the TV, there were no Ellen DeGeneres. Um, right. Modern Family, the gay couple in Modern Family, or Will and Grace, and, you know, Anderson Cooper, and Rachel Maddow, and Susie Orman. Or, I mean, the list goes on. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris, Elton John, George Michael, and I can go on and on. But the thing is, there was no role models. And if there was a role model, it was sort of somebody who was dressed as a woman, or somebody who was psychologically impaired. So, right. you know, I grew up thinking that I was sort of this mutation sort of this abnormality of nature. And this priest who I met um, through my friend, uh, Peter, who I talk about in the book, um, he was wonderful at first. I mean, he was this great man who was very charismatic. Everybody loved him. And he was like, if you ever seen the movie Nonsense where you have this sort of dull kind of boring church that people go to and all of a sudden they're singing nuns. Well, mm -hmm that version in the church. He was this guy who, you know, decorated the church and had Christmas lights everywhere. And he was, he brought a sort of a fresh air into the church. People loved him. People who weren't going to church that must, uh, much always went to his mass and the church was filled. He had a choir, he had a theater group. Um, so he was very charismatic. But again, he was a closeted gay priest. And I saw him um, I mean, he didn't come out as a gay priest to me until, uh, you know, a few months later, but, you know, he would take me out to dinners and I felt sort of like he was the father that I didn't have. So we, I, I bonded. I mean, I, I, you know, I was thrilled to have this priest give me the attention. 
I sort of felt I had a membership to a club that nobody else had. I could go right into the rectory and haha, all the church members weren't allowed in the rectory into the private sanctum of the priest, you know, priest area. So, but I felt good because we'd watch TV and he would go out to dinner and, you know, he would spoil me with gifts, but eventually that came with a price. And the price was his grooming me. Yeah, and I, on a side note, I used to work in youth sports and like the story you just told is, the child abuse prevention that I would go over with my coaches of the things that you're not allowed to do because they are serious red flags of grooming because unfortunately when people are predatory, um, they like people know how to get kids to like them, especially kids. This like the younger you are, the easier it is because you don't know the world yet. And you're looking, like you said, not only looking up to this adult, but this adult authority figure. And then on top of that, an adult authority figure that has, you know, is the representation of God and all of your beliefs and all of that. Like what they are saying, there's nobody telling you that what they are doing is not right. Absolutely. And that like, so you have, like, it's not even an option really to not believe them because they're the ones educating you as to what is acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes especially children very, very vulnerable to these things, right? Children are very impressionable when you have, priests are at a different level. I think they're even above a parent in the sense mm -hmm. of someone. You know, you, you grow up and you get angry at your parents for punishing you. But here is a priest that you, he's the highest form of trust. So, you know, that was my struggle. I trusted, I mean, I, I grew up to what a priest says and what a priest does. You always, you never disagree with a priest. And you go to hell for that um, sort of belief. I even remember, I talk about in my book, um, the whole experience of going in the confessional, sort of this sliding the door in the sort of mesh and sort of mm -hmm. this great Oz appears. And, you know, you're scared that beforehand, you know, here you are young and you're gonna tell your sins to the, to the priest and what you call a sin, you know, I pulled my sister's hair or I didn't do my chores. I mean, it's kind of insane. Um, you know, that's qualification of sin or, or having to do your Hail Marys and, and our fathers. So. You know, I think this thing of fear, this hell and damnation, and if you think of the words crucifixion and apocalypse and um, hell and brimstone and the devil, I mean, these things sort of radiate through you as a child of, and it creates all this anxiety and fear. Mm -hmm. So on top of that being a gay man, it was like this, wow, this is a lot for me to handle. And I was sort of an anxious child with this energy that was always shaky, you know, and, and wired up. And um, so, yeah, it was very difficult with, for me because as things progressed in the grooming process, he became very close to my parents. And that's part of the grooming process is that you infiltrate yourself with your family members. And my parents loved him. They invited him for dinner. They even invited him on trips. He became such a part of the family um, my it was, and I loved it because I never saw my mother laugh so much or feel so. I think the priest gave her and my father permission 
to relax and not be so afraid. Like he would have a scotch in his hand. He would walk out to the pool in his Speedos. He was, and he could swear with the best of them. So it was a very, um, it was a priest that you wouldn't have expected to have that, that role. He was sort of outside. And I think that's why a lot of parishioners really loved him because he was different. I mean, I remember one time, and I'll tell you real quick, is that there was a sermon that he gave it was so hot in the church and people are fanning themselves with the missalette and they're expecting this 15 minute sermon and they get he gets up and says you think it's hot here it's hotter in hell please rise so he could be very funny and his sermon was like in you know 10 second sermon so you know and i didn't want to disappoint my parents i didn't want to okay they love this man so much how do i tell them what's happening to me and I think, I know as a, a sexual assault survivor as well, um, that's a huge part of it. Like the, the step to being able to admit that it happened to you is hard enough, mm -hmm. but then admitting that it happened to the people around you, especially the people who were supposed to protect you. Because I know for me, that was like I felt guilty for admitting to my mom that she didn't protect me. Like I like I held the guilt of not being protected, which is ridiculous because I was the child. And but it doesn't stop the fact. And this like I had the conversation with her two years ago, like 25 years after it happened. And it's still, it was like, it was a very hard conversation to have because you're right. Like it's you were, telling them you don't want to disappoint them. You were unconsciously protecting your mother for feeling that she was a failure. Right. Even though she was, I'm like, our parents failed us. Yep. It was necessarily their fault. I don't know if my mother necessarily knew what was going on. But I, I, I did the same. I didn't want my parents to fail. I carried the burden in a way uh, of thinking that if I called them out on this, that, you know, I was damaged by this person and you failed me, I didn't want to hurt them, you know? Cause, and, and the other thing is my parents had gone through a lot. We had survived a house fire. And we, at, I ended up having to live in the rectory because my parents went to my aunt and uncle's house. My brother went to friend's house my other brother went to a friend's house and he convinced my parents you know michael's going to have a great place to, to to live he's going to be in the guest bedroom he's going to have his own telephone his own bathroom and how do you argue with someone when you're you don't have a place to sleep i just i just didn't want to be a burden to my parents so you know there was a lot going on back then so you know guilt and um not wanting to hurt my parents who loved this person. And I didn't want to displease God. Um, I was afraid if people found out in the community, the reputation that my parents would have to face. You have a gay son and the priest and him were having a relationship. And, um, or maybe the priest was um, being used by your son. I mean, there was all kinds of things that came up. I mean, I really thought that people would believe the priest before they would believe me. You know, this is early 80s, beginning of the night. Yeah. So that brings up a question for me. When when you finally 
like first told your story did people believe you first or did they believe him first well or a I, mixture what had happened and i'll just give you a little quick background before i answer that question is so here i am trusting this friend of mine and all of a sudden i'm in the, the rectory sitting next to the priest he's in one chair and i'm in the other chair and he had told me to close my eyes and when i opened my eyes he had told me to open my eyes he had the room candles lit and he had cheese and wine and it was his way of seduction and he openly told me that he was a gay priest and that he had a relationship with another priest who i talk about in the book and that they were not together anymore and that he found me attractive and you know i i describe being sort of shocked and not being able to move and telling him that I need to go into the bathroom. Then I'm in the bathroom trying to figure out a way out of this. And then in my mind, God is, and because I, I know what's happening, and, or at least I think I know what's going to happen. And will God be angry with me? My parents are going to find out. Could he convince my parents that I was the sick one? I mean, I, there was so many in the, in, the, in the community and the reputation. So when I walked back out, he started giving me a massage. And that's sort of where it led to the sexual assault, me saying no and stop. And he just continued. Um, but um, when it finally happened many years later, I, I mean, I, I lost my self-esteem. I had no sense of self-worth. Um, I even would walk with my head down. I sort of, I guess you could say, sort of was zombie-like. Eventually, what I decided to do um, was, um, well, before I decided to go to the auxiliary bishop, because you weren't allowed to see the bishop, I decided to see the auxiliary bishop to let them know what was happening to me. How it ended was I got a phone call from the priest and he would automatically say, I love you at, at the end of the conversation. Almost every time he would say, I love you. And I was a robot. I would just say, I love you and hang up. Mm -hmm. He advised this person. But this one time I couldn't do it. And I blew up at him and I said, how could you have done this to me? You ruined my life. You, you used me and, and, and I screamed at him. And he said to me, after I let it all out, he said, because you let me. And I slammed the phone down and I, I actually went to the hospital, the psychiatric ward. And cause I was, I didn't want to live at least my brain. I mean, I don't think I would have done something. My body wouldn't have done something, but my brain didn't want to live. There was a sense of, I just didn't want to live in my head. Yeah. And I went to see the psychiatrist in the psychiatric department for several visits. And I, and I talk about the experience in the book. And then I decided that I would at least let the bishop know. And that's when I went to the auxiliary bishop. And I described the whole situation. He comes out with his purple, you know, scarf thing and his purple hat and this big gigantic ring. And he sits in this chair. And I mean, he was completely in shock, but it was as though they wanted to sweep it under the rug. And that was it for me. I empowered myself at that moment, there was a sense of empowerment where I knew I was going to get legal action against the church. I had no choice because I was really only wanting him to be in therapy. I thought he would be in therapy and be helped. There was not mm -hmm. even talk about money. And I said, you know, to him, I'm in therapy as well right now, which I was. I, it, I went into therapy with another therapist that the therapist in the psychiatric ward set up for me. 
Um, but they just wanted to sweep it under the rug. As a matter of fact, the auxiliary bishop called a week later and just said, I was just checking to make sure your therapy is going well. And I said, what are you going to do about the priest? He says, well, I'm glad you're in therapy and we'll talk again at some point. Never called back. And they never removed him. Things were, I, I don't think the church really knows how to deal with it or they don't want to deal with it. They don't want, I think it has to do with their image. Yeah. I... I'm an open book and it's not really my story, but it's a story through my family. Um, and they have a, there's a priest they know that um, made some bad choices and he's very similar in your um, description of this other gentleman. Like he's very lively. He's at, at all of our families, weddings, dancing, drinking, um, just having a grand old time, like everybody loves him. And he made some bad choices and eventually got sent away for alcohol, alcoholism treatment. And then eventually the church, essentially from the story I heard, at least mm -hmm. they were like, you're here for alcoholism. Like we have a lot bigger problems. We have priests who are here doing a lot worse things. So like, your alcoholism is not our problem. Take care of it and go back. And so then they, they didn't place him at the same church, but they, you know, put him back out there because what he was doing was hurting himself more than hurting others. Mm -hmm. And they have like a whole, just like, you know, priests do the things that happen to you on a regular basis. And they're like, well, we gotta, we have to take you out of your parish and we have to, give you the slap on the wrist and say that we did something about it before we put you back out there. But they're not like, none of them are facing any legal action. None of them, like none of these people who they have proof that they have assaulted and molested children. None of them are behind bars there. And why our country is allowing like the church to deal with it themselves is completely beyond me because it's not like being a priest makes you um, mm -hmm. makes it so you don't have to follow laws. But I feel like that's what's happening. Like they, they have the ability to, like you said, sweep it under the rug so that nobody finds out and they can keep doing what they're doing. Not, I mean, I don't think that, there's like some conspiracy in the Catholic church where they want to harm all the people. I mean, aside from organized religion and not being a big fan of that. Um, but it's more like they just don't want to have to solve the problem because if they admit that there is a problem, like, so if they have to solve it, they have to admit there is a problem, which means mm -hmm. they have to admit they let it happen. And then there's that whole, like, Absolutely. they've, they've built, trust in millions of people across the world to follow them for centuries and if they admit that there's wrongdoing then they're afraid that all of that's going to collapse A absolutely and people don't you know I, I use an analogy in the book of an iceberg where parishioners mm -hmm. only see the 10 percent above the water the 90% of the iceberg is really below the water. People don't realize that the largest amount is under the water. So people don't see that. And the thing is, people also have to see that the church is a business. They mm -hmm. wouldn't survive without money coming in. 
and they obviously protect the business with a sense of their image. Um, and image is important to them. I think sometimes image is more important to them than the actual um, the suffering of the victims. And the reason most, like, I know that the average person who comes forward from sexual abuse in the past is in their 50s, which is insanity. A lot of them don't disclose it. A lot of them do, are too embarrassed mm -hmm. to, to let them know what happened to them. And the church gets away with it. And they come forward and obviously have statute limitations and so forth. And, you know, obviously it's too late to prove it or, you know, collect money or for what they've done, the damages. Um, and it's a shame. I think um, things are, have gotten better as with this particular pope. I mean, not hugely better, but better. Because in the past, the bishop didn't have to report the abuse. And the reason was is because I think the church saw through a different lens. They saw the priest as breaking his celibacy rather mm -hmm. than committing a crime. So we'll send him to another church or we'll send him to a sabbatical kind of retreat so he can reflect about his celibacy. But they've just abused a minor or somebody, even a teenager, whether it's a, chi a child or a teenager. And so they've abused somebody, but they don't see it as, an, as a rape. They see it as breaking celibacy. And they, um, it, it doesn't become in their mind a criminal act. It becomes more of a, um, a, you know, a slip up, you know, I guess you could say. And that's too bad. But now, nowadays, the Pope, there is, a, last year, they did change canon law where if the bishop does not um, pursue, you know, legal actions against the priest or do something, he can be held responsible and removed, completely removed. So the Pope wants them to get involved. He has to report abuse. Um, and, but that was just last year. That's insanity. It's yeah. I decades. So two points. One um like it like blah, make my words work. Um it seems like, you know, they're they're more worried about the priest's slight to God than the injury caused to another human being because they're like that's what their focus is, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, and then just another side note, even though I don't consider myself Catholic anymore, I do actually like the current Pope. So yeah, no, he's no, my favorite Pope of my lifetime. Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, I don't practice um, my faith. Um, I have issues with just, for me, I, being raised with fear, for me, that's mm -hmm. not, I mean, you know, not eating meat on Fridays and it's a sin if you have, you know, I used to I write in the book, but I had Oscar Mayer bologna, that, is that really meat, you know? And, or does, does the Vatican have stock in fish, in the fish trade, seafood? I mean, there's a lot of things I just think are crazy about the church because I think it's based on a sense of judging. You know, if you're divorced, you can't go to communion. If you're gay, you're not allowed in the church. If you're uh, abortion and the, the list goes on and it seems, that specific dogma is written for, um, you know, for certain kinds of people, but not for everyone, you know, and I, my group is a minority. And, you know, from, I'm, I, I know I was born gay. I know this is who I am. And, um, 
it's been scientifically proven that I was born this way. Um, and, you know, this Pope has been a little bit more accepting of the gays. But just think about how many people have been killed in the name of religion and gays mm -hmm. being killed in the name of religion. Um, and now the trans community being um, victims, you know, um, of sort of religious um, hatred. So, yeah, for me, the church has been, it's been a struggle. And also that it wasn't just one priest with me, it was several priests. Um, I was abused by one who um, has was eventually removed. And the sad reality, he was removed only after legal action. And they did it quietly because the, the bishop went to that specific church, got up and said that, you know, you're, you're, you're the priest from this church is taking a, taking a leave of absence, but he never told the people why. And um, no one ever knew why. And then the other priest, see, I ended up that because he was so, uh, he, because he was gr grooming me, he was also obsessed with me. There was a sense of mm -hmm. obsession. He would drive by the house, my parents' house, six, seven, eight times. Uh, one time I, I tell in the story is that I remember getting up late at night. It must have been one, two in the morning or something. And back in the 80s, there was not many people that would drive on the street um, in this small town. It's obviously been built up since then. But um, I just happened to be looking out the window and seeing a car drive by it late at night. And it was his car. And I was in complete shock. So he was, and he would always call me seven times a day, eight times a day, nine times a day, just to make sure I was where I was supposed to be. He was afraid of me creating any new friends. And he always mm -hmm. me that everyone's going to hurt me. So long story short is that um, he had a control over me. He was my sense of self-worth. He was my financial dependency. I mean, he got me a job because he knew where I would be. And the job was, no pun intended, the head sexton of a church cathedral in a, a town, a city nearby. And that's where the second sexual abuse took place. That priest, strangely enough, admitted to it and has since passed away. The priest that was the main priest was removed, but it wasn't removed till 2015. And this happened in the 80s. So 2015 is quite a long time wasn't defrocked till 2015. So that was only what, seven years ago. Um, so he was being paid all that time. Usually they're paid, but they're not removed completely until they're defrocked by the Pope. And it wasn't mm -hmm. 2015 that he was finally de defrocked. But, um, and then there was a third priest. Um, I was of age at the time when the third priest happened, but I was also so beaten down by what was happening to me in my past that I think almost anybody could have abused me at that at that point. My friend said, my God, Michael, I could have abused you. Anybody could have abused you because I didn't have any self-worth. And I let the third priest do it to me. And um, so, yeah, that's sort of what my story is, is sort of my, you know, and it, my, my story is a little unique. I mean, my story is growing up as a gay man, struggling, um, dealing with a priest, um, a lot of stories that you see out there right now are um, children who've been abused, and then the priest mm -hmm. 
another child and another child. Mine was, my, my story is unique because it doesn't give the aspect of being a gay man struggling with a gay priest and being abused. So it's just a different sort of narrative. So one thing that I've always wondered with all of this stuff going on, because there are, um, I don't know, you might actually know statistics on this, but um, I feel like it is at least, because there's, I mean, there's Catholicism overall, but um, Catholicism is a little bit different everywhere. Like Catholicism in Wyoming is practiced much differently than North Dakota. North, North Dakota is like way more strict. Um, but the idea that, um, so from what I remember from the catechism is that being gay itself was not a sin, but acting upon being gay was a sin. So it actually encourages people, well, gay men, I guess, because women aren't allowed to be priests, um, <laughs> to go into the church. And then because that's where they can serve God and be celibate and not sin and do all of that. But then it also puts them in a position so not only in a position of power, but then in a position where, as, I mean, we're human and humans are flawed. And um, how much do you feel like that? Because I feel like that plays a huge part in what has happened and why there is so much abuse in the church. Because people who, I mean... When you restrict, it doesn't matter what it is, when you restrict yourself so much mm -hmm. and you eventually don't restrict yourself, you generally go overboard. Like you go from one extreme to the next. And when you're not taught to live in the gray area of life or not allowed to live in the gray area of life, you, because so when your, your first story, the, the, um, the priest who groomed you, when did that start? Like, what what age were you? I was 17 at the time, just turned 17. And of course, you're going to hear people saying, but you were, weren't you, you were old enough. And, uh, but people don't understand the variables, which is what we talked about. Right. I was 17 in a small town, but I was probably emotionally 14. I was not a cultured person. I mean, I never went outside. I mean, we went to Disney World and we went to see my... Um, my grandmother and cousins in Canada, which is just over the border. I never experienced, I was not cultured in art and, and Europe and traveling other countries and um, in music and opera and ballet. I, mean, I knew I was not cultured. I was this young kid who watched cartoons. And even as a teenager, I was not cultured. And, and I believed what my parents told me. You listen to a priest. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and it was sort of ingrained. And then you have that fear, you know, the fear of, you know, what you're taught in catechism, you know, the flood and Adam and Eve and um, hell and brimstone. And then you hear about, you know, God turning people to stone in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, you know, you hear all these stories. So you have the sense of fear of God already. Um, and then you have the world who wants to kill gay people, at least mm -hmm. people do, or at least don't want them around and or think, believe it's a sickness. So I closed my mouth. I said nothing. I, nobody knew. But people knew in my school. I was called sissy and fag and queer. And it was not a very easy thing for me. Um, 
and I had to, you know, be, I was picked on and bullied and so forth. Um, so I was 17 years old. And um, that's when it occurred, uh, you know, that the first time that that happened. Um, but going back to answer your question, I like that because I always thought, how do you suppress your hunger? How do you suppress your thirst? How do you suppress your sexual desires? I don't think it's very easy for any human being because it's a natural thing for everybody to have sexual right. desires. And how do you suppress those things? You can't. Um, and I don't think that the church in seminary life or in theology teach that for a priest. And so these priests who might be closeted, because I think it's a very high percentage. I'm, my guess is it's 40 to 50%, maybe even 60% of priests are gay. I, I would say the minimum of the 40%, uh, but I think it's much higher because I met so many um, in my, in, in, the, in those years, I met mm -hmm. a dozen gay priests. Even the bishop was gay. Um, and the auxiliary bishop was gay. And they were both accused of sexual inappropriateness, um, which I talk about in the book. They were both accused. But anyways, I don't know how they, all of a sudden, I'm not going to have any kind of sexual desires. I'm going to become sort of this asexual person. And I'm not going to think about that. I don't think it's, it's possible. I think what would be possible is priests becoming married. Mm -hmm. And it would be nice to have the church allow gay priests to have gay partners. It'd be easier if you allow people to be married and have that aspect, which I think is a beautiful aspect. God created that. I don't, you know, people talk, don't like to talk about their sexual behaviors. And I think that that's, we're sexual beings. But, it, but the problem is, is people have to recognize that there are, there are conditions like pedophilia. Mm -hmm. This priest wasn't a pedophile. There was different classifications, which a lot of people don't know about. And I kind of talk about it, that pedophile, a pedophile priest would like prepubescent children. Right. Um, hebeophile, people don't have, they know pedophile, but they never heard of hebeophile, are children at the cusp of puberty. So that age range would be like between 11 and 14. And then there's ebiophiles who are attracted to 15, 16. So there's different classifications. My issue is that um, he most likely was an ebiophile. He liked young teenage boys. Mm -hmm. I don't attracted to children. Um, and that, these are things that need to be taught. And, um, you know, I don't care if you're, two years old or you're 20 years old you and if you're not given permission like this priest I was 17 I said stop don't do this and he, when you continue um with force you continue with mm -hmm. persuasion or whatever that's rape when you say rape. this to me and you violate that person's word and you continue that is rape no matter what and he would have been he would have he should have gone to jail for rape and he, we settled quietly. I took a very little bit amount of money, very little back then in the 80s. Now you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, but back then it was a few thousands of dollars. I took the money because for me, having nothing and no self-worth, that was better than nothing for me. And I was able mm -hmm. to create my life. So, I mean, I just wish that the seminaries would taught, teach sexuality and, um, you know, talk about pedophilia and talk about the things that are uncomfortable for priests because maybe they need to have 
um, maybe they need to be scared and say, you know, you can go to jail for this. And you, there's, you know, thousands that have gone to jail and thousands that have not gone to jail and have um, quietly disappeared, like, you know, retired or, or so forth. And there's probably still thousands right now that are still priests. So. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer, not just in the church, but in society in general. If we could have conversations about the difficult topics, if we could sit down and do that, the world would be a much better place because we have, we've turned into this culture where we don't talk about taboo topics because it's uncomfortable. And then you, we just have, I mean, look at our political, political spectrum and we just have people screaming at each other. Um, Absolutely. That they're wrong instead of having the conversation of, okay, here's the problem. How do we fix it? And I mean, humans are incredibly intelligent animals. We can figure this shit out, but we don't want to because it's hard. <laughs> and um, I don't know. I think that goes. I love that word taboo. That's a very good word. Yeah. And it's, and I think, I mean, even again, if you look at our, our political spectrum, again, a lot of it is based on religion and the people who say, you know, we believe in the, in the black aspect of things because this is the religion that we follow. And then other people over here saying, well, I believe in the white of things and nobody's not nobody, but most of the really loud people yes, absolutely. <laughs> aren't, aren't trying to find that gray area that says, okay, like we're human. We have, so we have flaws, we make mistakes, but we can get better. Um, and I think, so I nerd out over this all the time, um, especially when it comes to trauma, but as humans, we have neuroplasticity. So we have the ability to change. We have the ability to change from within. Um, and then we have the ability to take that change outside of us and impact the world around us. But you have to do the work. Like the, the concept of change, like, so one of my favorite sayings is um, that things are simple, but that the most, so, okay, I don't know how the saying goes can't remember but essentially that um like usually the solution to things like whatever it is the best solution to something is very simple mm -hmm. but to do something simple well is very hard so even like i got my degree in architecture and they would talk about that all the time Congratulations. like thank you it's not what i do with my life but it was a good time <laughs> it was not it was not a, well whatever no, but it's a it was a very time. difficult time architecture school is Beautiful. is rough but in design if you want to have something simple it's much more difficult to have a simple design that is done well mm -hmm. than it is to have a complex design like um minimalism in a design sense is the same aspect like to be able to have something that's visually appealing with not a lot of stuff is difficult to do. Uh, but it's the same thing when you're talking about whether it's healing trauma or having a conversation or taking the steps to have a conversation with somebody that you don't want to have. 
the answer is very simple. The simple is the simple answer is you have to do it, but the doing it is not easy. Like knowing that you can, you can change. So like the, the most basic way of like using your neuroplasticity to your advantage is that to change your habits, you just change them day by day, right? So you say, I do X, Y, Z, I want to do ABC, and you start doing ABC. But your brain naturally goes back to X, Y, Z because that's what it knows. So you have to continuously push yourself into the unknown, which as humans, we don't like to do because <laughs> it's scary. The problem is, is that people love to stay in their comfort zone. Yep. And, you know, Mel Robbins talks about, you might even have seen it on some of the videos, but she says, you know, nobody's coming. Nobody's coming to knock at your door. Nobody's coming to get you the job that you want. Nobody's coming mm -hmm. to the health that you want, exercise, and the list goes on. Nobody's going to write that book for you. And the thing is, we stay in our comfort zone. We have the unconscious voice, which mm -hmm. is powerful. If you utilize it, then the conscious self listen to your unconscious voice because you have lots of ideas, but we don't go to the next step. We have those ideas. Okay, I would love to write a book and I think about, the thing is, is to listen to the voice and actually do it. And it's amazing, step outside of that comfort zone, how much you can actually get it accomplished. I thought about writing a book for many years, but I was in my comfort zone. I didn't want to, <laughs> listen to that voice because I didn't believe that I could or I wasn't good enough and those are that mind chatter that we all have. So what I ended up doing was I took a book off the shelf and I wrapped it with a fake cover and I wrote the name of the book. Back then it was um, Behind Stained Glass. It was sort of, a, I wrote Behind Stained Glass. So the book was already accomplished on my desk. So when I was writing, I already envisioned the book being done and it helped me power through, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. So after I had 10 pages and 30 pages and 150 pages, it, the book started to appear and it, 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 I, I sort of, it sort of happened. And, and I have other projects that I think of in my head, but I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to bring them forward into consciousness. And I'm excited about that because if I can write a book and get it published with a publishing company, the world is open to me. There's lots of we can all do. But the problem is, we, like you said, we stay in our comfort zone and we don't um, go forward with it, which is too bad. And people, you know, there's a line from the, the musical Man of La Mancha is to reach the point of death, never, never knowing that you've lived at all. And it's very powerful. You know, now is the time. You know, the Buddha said, um, the problem is, is that we think we have time. Yeah. Um, another, we'll say quote-ish that I really enjoy is um, most people think they die in their 80s, but most people actually die in their 20s and then just continue living, like not living until their body dies. Like I, the, the way yeah. our culture is set up right now. Now, okay, I would, I'll say the way our culture has historically been the idea that you, you know, you go to school, you graduate school, you get a nine to five, mm -hmm. you do that until you retire. You have a couple of years where you get to play and, and then you die. 
Um, that's how our society is set up. I'm actually very, very proud of like the coming generations because there's been a lot, there's a lot more like entrepreneurs coming out. There's a lot more people who are saying, this is what I enjoy. This is how I'm going to monetize it. This is how I'm going to make a living doing what I enjoy because my life is for me and not for society. It's not for the man. Um, like <laughs> basically, uh, woman, it makes me happy. That's wonderful. <laughs> it took a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I like, I'm, I'm excited to see what the next, like the generations behind me, what are they? Gen Z. I don't even know what comes after Gen Z, whatever they are. Sure. Um, what, like what that's going to look like, because not only do they have, so like, I'm like a middle-aged millennial, you know, there's like elder millennials and there's baby millennials. And I'm like the one right in the middle. Um, so I have a little bit, of both i had the the hard knocks life of you know coming home when the street lights turned on but i also have this idea that i don't want to live by like what society says i'm supposed to anymore Good and trying to break that mold but i think the next generation's Thank you. It's 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 a very fun adventure and not in my comfort zone. <laughs> good. Good, good, good. Um, but I think the next generations like we've started paving a new way. And so I'm excited to see what the world turns into. I mean, there are days like yesterday when tragic things happen where I am just like what is this world? What is even the point? Like sure. can we please just nuke ourselves now? Um but then there's the other part where I get to talk to people like you who like you have this brilliant lived experience that you have taken the painful aspects of your life and raised your voice about them so that other people can find a way to heal. And it helps you heal. It helps others heal. It also helps bring light to issues that, you know, if you had not spoken up, maybe like you, I firmly believe in the butterfly effect that the impact you have on an individual person can change the world because like smiling at strangers is one of my favorite things to do mm -hmm. um, because you never know how that impacts somebody's day. Someone, like, that reminds me, someone said, when you go into an elevator and everybody's facing the door, you turn around and look at everybody. People get very mm -hmm. comfortable with that difference, that sense of mm -hmm. uncomfortableness. And, you know, I want to be different in the world. I don't, I, I want to be that difference that I, that we all want to be, you know, be that change that we want to see in the world. Because, yeah. you know, this, people say, you know, if you, um, uh, if you follow, what is it? If you follow, um, God, if you believe in something, if you don't believe in something, then you'll fall for anything. That's, yep. that's what it is. If you, if you don't believe in something or if you don't follow something, then you'll fall for anything. And, you know, I, the only advice I would give to people are two things. One is I would say, find the passion in your life. I don't care if it's gardening, work at a garden shop. If it's pets, then work at a pet store. Don't follow it for the money. 
follow your passion and then the money comes because then mm -hmm. you then you build and you can build your own garden shop or whatever however my brother had one lawnmower and he loved doing the yard work and now he has 16 employees and he owns this big landscaping company but follow it and it may take time but don't ever do it because a lot of people are very unhappy in their jobs oh yeah and my partner who was a lawyer doesn't want to go back to doing being a lawyer only did it because his parents wanted to be him to become a lawyer i say follow your passion don't be, do it because of the money and the second bit of advice is a story that was told to me a long time ago was um, as a child, and we're on our bicycle for the first time, and mommy and daddy are saying, oh, good, Johnny, you're doing a great job. You're riding the bicycle. Or we're on our skates. Oh, good, Johnny, you're doing such a good job. Well, as adults, we can't, we can't go around looking for that applause that we once got, the validation that we got from, from our parents. But what we do is we get it with our vehicles and our clothing and our houses. Mm -hmm. We'll try to seek that attention with our expensive clothes or expensive cars, expensive mansions on the hill. It's all based on ego. People who drive around in a big car, a Corvette or a fancy car really want the attention. Look at me, I'm, I, I'm successful. Think about a woman who wears a mink coat. It's not about the mink coat. You know, skunk will keep you just as warm, <laughs> but it's the status of the mink coat. Look at me, I've made it. Give me that attention. So we're, we're doing what we did as children. We're looking for validation. We're looking for people to praise us all the time with what we wear or what we drive or what we uh, look like and so forth. And, and I tell people not to live your life because want is always going to equal suffering. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, Buddhist belief is that we're all meant to suffer no matter what health, people dying, we're all meant to suffer the cause of suffering is want, wanting more money, wanting that person to live forever, wanting that um, car, that want will always, if you strive for that wanting all the time, it's gonna be suffering. So I live a very simple life. I have, I've been fortunate to have a lot of money um, in my investments and, and I've done very well for my life so I could retire early. But for me, I wanna become a sort of, I want, the universe to use me in a good way. So I have some projects coming. One of them is involving a YouTube channel and blog site we're going to be building. I'll be traveling to all these wildlife sanctuaries and filming um, these adventures of me volunteering and interviewing the staff members um, and showing the good adventures, good things that people are doing in the world. But I'm also going to make a donation. So if this elephant sanctuary needs like, you know, a new electric and, you know, a new plumbing or new roof, I can donate that for them, but also have a YouTube channel so people can follow my adventures across the world. Um, and that is doing good in the world for me. And that's what I, I, I want. I think everybody should do is do something that really is a positive change. Yeah, I think so. Like the concept of um, you should always leave something better than when you came. So like, I think a lot of times we think that when like we go to somebody's house or something and you're like, okay, well, I'm gonna help you clean up after our dinner party because I was taught you always leave something better than mm -hmm. like when you got there. But I think a lot of times we forget that about the world in general. Like the world was a certain way when we all arrived here <laughs> and our job is to make it better before we leave. Yeah, and I mean, doesn't every human being on this planet who has a family or, or relatives or mother and a father say, geez, 
An elephant is a beautiful thing. Why do I want to destroy that? There will be none left for my child or, you know, and the, the major thing that I want to come across is that with this book is that there's 4,200 religions in this world. That's a lot of religions, 19 major ones, you know, mm -hmm. Hindu and Islam and Buddhism and Judaism and Jainism and the list goes on. And then you can go down to Lutherans and Episcopalians and Baptists and Pentecostals and the Amish and Mennonites and so forth. And I say that your religion, if you want to live your way with that religion, that's how you want to live. But don't impose your beliefs because there's over 4,000 religions, your beliefs on dogma mm -hmm. on me. And I struggle with like right now with abortion rights, you're basing your decision on religion. It, you have to take religion out of the equation because there's over 4,000 religions. Right. And some religions, it's okay to have an abortion or some religions, it's okay to do certain things that other religions don't allow. You need to take that element out. And, you know, and that, that's why I'm not, I don't have, I don't go to the Catholic church anymore because to tell someone that you can't, love another human being because you're gay or you can't get communion because you're divorced and you know these rules is 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 insanity to me i don't i i want to be spiritual i'd join a religion if it was a religion that was not rule-based and um condition based and um a sense of control based and the only way that i could the only thing i could think of is me being spiritual myself just being a spiritual human being there's no religion that doesn't do that. So there's yeah, a sense of control or sense of dogma and so forth. Yeah. Actually, my mom and I were talking um, a couple weeks ago. She was talking about how there's like a bunch of like big mega churches that are like non-denominational popping up. And she's like, well, why do you think that is? And I was like, well, because people are like they're sick of the dogma of the religions that they've come from. So they're trying to start something new. And she said, well, don't you think that they're going to have the same problem? And I said, yeah, like a couple generations down the road, they're going to have the same problem because religion. So if you believe in a, a higher power or whatever type of higher power you believe in that, like that would exist no matter what, but religion to me was created by man and Mm -hmm. Man is flawed. Like humans are flawed. And so what we create mm -hmm. is flawed. Absolutely. I struggle, like I was a very big fan of George Carlin. And, you know, I struggle with the sense that he talks about, we have to believe in this man, white man, that we grew up mm -hmm. with. If Jesus wouldn't have been a white man, uh, he would have been dark skinned. Uh, right. But we believed in this beautiful blue eyed white man sitting with his father up in heaven, looking down at us seeing all this horribleness, he loves us so much, but yet there's wars and crime. And I struggle with the fact that, okay, how do you connect the two? How do you connect the fact that there's so much that he, is, is, he if he controls these things, why are you letting innocent lives die? You know, yeah. you're a loving God. And then you also have the aspect of an angry God because angry, mm -hmm turn people into stone. So you're loving, you're angry. You know, I don't, I don't believe in that. I mean, I grew up believing that you could put every species on a boat. It would be the size of New Jersey. 
there were just hundreds of species of lizards. You know, there's yeah. thousands of different um, reptiles and thousands of different mammals. You, it's, it's conceivably scientifically impossible to put all species on a boat. Or Adam and Eve had two sons. He kills one son, and then that son, if you read to the end of the story, that son goes out into the city and marries, and there's a city of people. Where did they city of people come from if there was only Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel? It, does, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me what it is their stories to help you mm -hmm. teach you some, a lesson, but they're not based on facts or reality. They're, they're fables. Exactly. So they are, yep, they are intended to teach a lesson, to have a moral, to guide you, and somewhere along the line, um, probably after they got written down, because they were stories that were passed on verbally, because that's how humans passed on history before they learned how to write or created writing. Um, and at some point, someone was just like, nope, this is the truth. And no one, like, it's infallible, and it is exactly what happened. And then they taught the next generation that, and the next generation, and somewhere people stopped having the constructive thinking to go mm, like this doesn't seem right <laughs> yeah. and thousands of people study thousands anthropologists and archaeologists when thousands of thousands spend their whole life studying history studying how the earth was created and you don't believe in science but you believe that god created it in seven days Did he sit in a chair because he was exhausted after seven days he created what one day the mountains i mean it, there's no sense of there's no sense of it doesn't make any sense to me and people yeah. want to believe sort of these fables and and it's too bad because um as a child i really believed all that i really was brainwashed in a way to believe those stories which are not based on reality and scientific facts and um you know i believe in um you know evolution because i stumped a priest i said okay if you don't you're not teaching evolution, then explain the dinosaurs. And there's no answer for that because the answer is, is that things are developing in a certain way and then either climate, meteor, whatever happened, then life turns a different way. Things are always, animals are still being created now. They're still mutating and creating new species. Um, and obviously the dinosaurs didn't survive, but some species did. But we've got chickens and alligators. Absolutely. And some fish. And some of the reptiles, some of the dinosaurs actually had feathers like chickens. Yep. And that's scientifically based and, and true. And, um, you know, I, I believe in that. And then, you know, you say to yourself, you know, people don't understand the spectrum. I say there's a spectrum of someone who is a heterosexual, homosexual, asexual, bisexual. That's what I try to describe to them because why do men have nipples? which is kind of a funny thing and there's no answer it's because we are all the same if i was for right. estrogen i would develop breasts and yeah. if a woman started to take more testosterone she would become more manly it's because we are all the same it's just a spectrum of life and if you have a spectrum of different people you have a spectrum of distant sexualities i also okay so i'm gonna dive into this real quick sure um we're gonna we're gonna talk genitalia real quick. <laughs> like, if you look at what they're actually built out of, they are the same. 
like literally one's an innie, one's an outie, but the systems that build them up are like, there's like, well, one chromosome, which decides which, like if you're going to have an innie or outie. And sometimes yeah. even that doesn't, well, I'm going to go as planned. Aphrodite. Like, Aphrodite. Yeah. Your um, sexual organs. Right. And so I think it's, I don't know. I could rant on the concept of gender because I personally don't believe gender exists. I think gender is a social construct and it, like, you can be born a man or a woman or um, a hermaphrodite when that happens, but everything else was just society's way of controlling people and telling people how they're supposed to be because people give me crap all the time and tell me that I'm too masculine. And I'm just like, yeah, but I rock a sundress really well. <laughs> so like when, if you meet me in a sundress, you're not going to know that I am a power lifter with an 800 pound total because that's not what, I mean, you probably will. Cause I'll talk about it, but <laughs> like, so when, when you meet me in like, if I'm being feminine, you're going to think I'm feminine. If you meet me in the gym, you're going to think I'm masculine. But the fact of the matter is I'm all of those things because I'm a human and humanity is a spectrum. <laughs> like all of it. I, if I was, I'm Scottish. So if I was to wear my Scottish skirt in high school, they'd be like, oh, he's wearing a skirt and be made fun of. But that's my culture. You know, right. makeup, men wear makeup in African countries and lots of different cultures. Makeup is normal, but we're men wearing makeup here in society. I want people to be allowed, I would, I love, see, I've traveled the world. I love it that people can be who they want to be without mm -hmm. zero judgment. And, you know, and that's the other thing of bringing a, 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 children or babies who are born with both sex organs. That's just showing you that there is a gray area between white and black. Yep. I mean, there's that gray area of um, sexuality where sometimes the doctor will choose the sex that's more, maybe more predominant, or he just decides <laughs> to choose. And then that person that, that say the girl, say it's a girl and the girl had both sex organs, but recognizes that she's more of a boy. And that's too bad because it's the doctor's fault for choosing the wrong organ. Um, so you have to recognize that it's not straight heterosexual people and that's it. It's a spectrum of people's sexual orientations, spect a spectrum of different skin tones, a mm -hmm. spectrum of different heights, spectrum of different hair. Spectrum of different body types. Absolutely. I rant about that all the time. I'm, there's I was the, never meant to be a tiny person. <laughs> there's the answer to the world, I believe world peace is recognizing that every spectrums are in everything. You go mm -hmm. to some of the Baltic countries, they're more lighter skin because there's less sun and melatonin is not created in their, in their skin. And you go obviously to some of the other countries that have darker skin. We are all the same. It's just that we, I love the differences in people. And once people don't put labels, because I remember like I, I said to somebody, you see a black woman walking across the street, you may say, oh boy, she's a black woman and you know, she might be a problem. Per and I say, why don't you see her as a woman or a daughter or an aunt to somebody or a businesswoman or, 
um, someone who's an amazing person, instead of your racist or bigoted mind all of a sudden goes to that, see them as brothers and sisters or mothers or fathers or uncles or, or aunts. That's what, mm -hmm. or as strong or as empowered or as beautiful as anybody else. I don't see them as a black person. I don't see that person as an Asian person. I see them as just a person who's like me. And I see them as somebody who's a person, you know, an aunt or an uncle or a brother or a sister who has a mother and a father. So it's a shame that we right. live in a very bigoted world. And, and obviously with the war that's happening and all these things that are happening, it, it's a shame. Mm -hmm. And there's a war within the church. The church should come out and say, look, there's no judgment here. We accept all people into the church, gay, straight, purple hair. You know, I don't care what you look like. You're welcomed and we're not going to judge you. And you can welcome to get communion because God loves everybody. If you believe that, I mean, that would be a better church. It would be a wonderful experience. That would be a great Pope. Yeah, I think knowing that there's another human being, even just one other human being on this planet that thinks similar to me in that sense gives me hope that it is possible. That's great. No, I felt it, it's, it was such a pleasure to talk to you because it does, you, there's a sense of connection that we have, mm -hmm. um, sacred connection that we understand life and, and the journey is, is a better journey for us. I think we live a better journey because we're more accepting. There, I would hate to be somebody who's so rigid and I only like this kind of a person and I, oh, I don't want to be neighbors with that person. What a horrible life they live. Right? What a hard, yeah. rigid, un, unhappy life with. And I think that's the problem is such, how do you live with such hatred? And I live in a world where I see everything is beautiful, even what people conventionally call unattractive or ugly or distorted or disabled, I see is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Beautiful version of everything. I th so I think, I tell people all the time, so I think everything is beautiful. And I think everything, like for me, the energy that makes up the universe is love. Like everything is made out of love because every single aspect of our universe serves another aspect of the universe. And it's, it's it, when you serve other people, that is my definition of love, when you just serve other things. So everything is love because everything has a purpose. Marianne Wilmanson said this, which I always follow from many, many years ago. She said that there are only two emotions, love, and the opposite of love is fear. So jealousy mm -hmm. is a form of fear, racism is a form, bigotry, hatred, um, anger, anything that is not love is a form of fear. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Racism, mm -hmm. hatred, jealousy, anger, um, any of those impatientness, anything that you are not in a loving mode, you're in a you're in a fearful mode. And if people recognize that, they will always say, yes, I guess I am coming from a, a sense of fear in those feelings. So you always come from a loving place. It's not always easy. Um, right. But, but when it's you're simple, not, but not easy. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. So yeah, okay. I'm going to just grab my book and um, to quickly tell whoever's watching that, um, yeah. A large portion of the profits of um, Behind Sacred Walls is going to an organization called SNAP. It's an acronym for Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. 
and nuns and so forth. It's just, I don't know why they say priests, but I guess you could, they should have called it with an R or something, spa or something. So re using re the word religious. But anyways, they call it SNAP and um, a large portion is gonna go to them. Um, and they, they're an organization and it's funny, you can go to them and you can, if anybody who has had um, experiences of abuse, you can, they have lots of different hotlines and lots of different organizations that you can look up. On my website, behindsacredwalls.com is also a link to a lot of resources and hotlines that you can call and, and talk to somebody and um, there's something else I want to mention. Yeah, the book is, um, gosh, on every book site you can think of, from Amazon to Barnes & Nobles to Walmart, um, Books A Million, you name it. It's, and it's right now in about a dozen countries as well. It's expanded to a dozen countries. Um, but I, and I, you know, I want to thank you. I don't know if you have any more questions. I'm willing to talk to you for hours. You're wonderful to talk to. Well, we can arrange another time that <laughs> we can cover something else. And right. well... We'll do that. Um, and I will, just so everyone knows, I'll have all of those things linked in the description so that you can find them all easily. And um, buy his book. It's amazing. And um, just hearing your story and all of this has been fantastic. Um, and then when you when you have your YouTube up and running, maybe that's what our next show will be about. I want to I want to see you helping all the animals. <laughs> come back and, and, and give people some information about my adventures, my journey in helping um, to not only volunteer, but also to show what some of these people are doing in the world, like Jane Goodall with the chimpanzees and so forth. And, um, and uh, um, the one with the gorillas in Uganda, uh, Diane, uh, what's her name? Fossey, Diane Fossey. So absolutely, I would love to, to share some of my adventures and they're going to be about a half an hour YouTube adventure edited. And, 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 and I'm thinking we're using sort of a title called Earth Warriors or Earth Defenders or something like that. We haven't finalized it, but thank you. Yeah. I, I like it. So and then for everyone else, I am CS Phoenix. You can also find my book, um, my poetry book about my journey through trauma and healing um, in the description below. And if you ever need someone to talk to, feel free to drop into my DMs if you want to be on the show, anything like that. I just love having real human conversation. So, Michael, thank you for joining us today. It was a pleasure. And I look forward to the next time we chat. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Take care. You too. Bye. <laughs>